The following message by Alistair Begg is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel and to chapter 23 and to follow along as I read the first seven verses, which will be our passage for this morning. I'm going to assign to each of us the responsibility of memorizing the balance of the chapter uh, before our time tonight so that we're well ready to work our way through this list. But for now, 2 Samuel 23, beginning at verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Amen. Father, it is because we believe the things that we have just sung about the Word of God, the Bible, that we turn to it now, asking for the help of the Holy Spirit to speak and to hear in a way that is true to the Scriptures and uh, points us unreservedly to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, a great deal has elapsed since uh, the day that Samuel appeared at the house of Jesse in order to let Jesse know that God had informed Samuel the prophet that God had decided to take a king for himself from the house of Jesse. Jesse, of course, had a number of sons, and the youngest of them, David, was fetched from the responsibilities of a routine day as one looking after the sheep and coming out of the fields. He arrived. We were introduced to him way back at the beginning of our studies, a long time ago now, and we had a picture of him. He was a picture of health. We're told in the text that he was bright-eyed and that he was a handsome fellow. And he was then in turn anointed, and we were told on that occasion that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And indeed, the story of David's existence is directly tied to all that had not only happened on that day, but all that God had chosen to do with him and through him since that day. And that's why we've been following his story. We've seen him at his best. We've seen him at his worst. We have paused and been amazed, inspired by him, 
on account of his leadership and his faithfulness. And then at the same time, we had to shake our heads and be depressed and disappointed by his failings. And now, as the end draws near, as you can see here from our text, it's actually quite fitting that his final words, at least the final words as we see them here, uh, come in the form of a song or in the form of a poem. Because, again, if you go all the way back to the beginning, uh, we essentially began this story uh, with the song of Hannah. And Hannah, uh, giving voice to the work of the Spirit of God within her, uh, said these words, "'The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and great glory to his anointed.'" So, in other words, there is a prophetic word there. She could never know just all that that meant, who it would mean, who would be involved, and so on. But she spoke as from the Lord. And, in turn, David, who, of course, was the focus of that prophecy, receives a prophecy that we might say is of his very own. When Nathan comes and explains to David that God has a purpose that through the lineage of David— there will be one who sits on the throne of David, and his kingdom will never fail, and it will last forever and ever. That's 2 Samuel 7. Your house, says the prophet, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, that's quite a while ago, because he was 30 when he became king. Uh, it's now towards the end of his life, so we know that he's at least in the region of 70. Some of us are in the region of 70, and uh, we meet others who are in that similar uh, demographic, some who are joyful souls, and others uh, with whom you certainly would not want to go on vacation. The latter category, because they have now decided that the reason for their continued existence is in looking backwards— constantly going back, either to great glory days—it was a terrific time back then, if you'd only lived then, if you'd only known that then—or even worse, going back to failures and disappointments, and, oh, goodness gracious, could you please stop talking? And then the other person who's always looking forward, uh, full of anticipation, recognizing that foundations have been laid. There have been very many twists and turns on the journey of life, and yet here they are at this point in life, and they're looking forward. They're saying, now, what is before us? And essentially, that is what David is doing here. Now, someone may immediately say, well, that's very interesting, Alistair, but after all, that was a long, long time ago. We're talking about thousands of years ago, and I'm glad that you're excited about the fact that there was an ancient king of Israel who was uh, feeling the way that you say he was feeling. But you don't understand. I'm only 17 years old, or I'm only 26, or whatever it is. I've got a lifetime in front of me, or I might only be 10. And you're saying, what difference does it make what was happening to David, the king of Israel, for me as a 12-year-old girl living in Cleveland, Ohio? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. Here's what I'm going to tell you, that the story of King David and the promise that was made to King David is the answer to your life is the answer to your 10-year-old life, your 20-year-old life, your 50-, 60-95-year-old life. The promise that was made to King David is the hope for the world. 
the entire world. Not just Ohio, not just America, the entire world. Because the story of the kingdom is the truth of the gospel. It is the fact that this king, who is promised through the line of David, is one who will embody all that makes it possible for the world to be the way that God originally intended it. Because we know that when God made it, it was really good. In fact, he says that. Everything he made was good. But it's not good now, is it? It's broken. It's messy. It's filled with disappointments, pain. People have to go to hospital. Folks get dementia. Things are upside down. And as a result, people say, is there any way that this could be fixed? Is there any hope? Is there any hope in the entire world? And so here you find that the answer to that longing, which is an understandable longing, is found here in 2 Samuel, because it points us to Jesus. In fact, when we sing uh, in the Christmas carols, uh, we sing it very straightforwardly, don't we? We have that little couplet, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in him tonight. And we ended with a Christmas carol last Sunday, caught many of you off guard, and uh, went home to make sure it wasn't actually Christmas and you'd been asleep for a long time. But no, we were just making the point, and it's the same point. Now, let's get to the text and to recognize that these are the last words of David. Incidentally, we should not necessarily assume that they are literally the last words of David, because, as you will have to see, we need to get to 1 Kings chapter 2 before he actually dies. And uh, he has a number of statements that he makes before he finally dies. So I take it that the way in which this is stated is, if you like, is kind of, this is my last will and testament. Or, as the book of Ecclesiastes ends, the closing verse or two of Ecclesiastes says, this is the end of the matter. Uh, Fear God and keep his commandments. And so here David writes, and he is saying, this is, if you want to understand me, if you want to have a key to make sense of my life, if you want to know these things, then let me help you as I share these words. Uh, The oracle of David, you will notice, the oracle of David, the oracle of the man, that is a big, bold word. It means a declaration from God. I am making, he says, a declaration from God. God's own word from David's own lips. It's a great mystery, isn't it? It's the mystery what we refer to as concurrence, or uh, the dual authorship of the Bible, that God speaks, and he speaks as Paul writes his letters, or as Luke writes his gospel, or as Amos writes his prophecy, and so on. Oh, God, 100% engaged in the process, and Amos, or in this case, David, 100% engaged in the process. We don't delay on that. I have four words. I'll tell you what they are so you can find out if we're making progress. The first word is identity. The second word is prophecy. The third word is history. And the final word is destiny. All right? Identity. David says, this is who I am. This is who I am. It's verse 1. What would you uh, like us to know about you, David? If we said to you, what, what should we really know about you? We've, we've been following your story, and uh, 
Quite a story it has been. What do you want us to know? Well, here he tells us. Number one, I am the son of Jesse. I am the son of Jesse. That doesn't sound particularly striking, does it? After all, uh, who was Jesse, we might find ourselves saying. Or what he's actually acknowledging is his humble origin. If they'd had a yearbook in those days, he wouldn't have had a lot of stuff in his yearbook. I mean, at least, you know, I looked after sheep. uh, I'm a shepherd. Probably nobody would have written against his photograph, most likely to succeed, most likely to become the king of Judah and Israel. No, and if someone had written that in, he would have said, that's—I don't know where you got that from at all. No, he's, he's from Jesse, which is actually fantastic. I mean, everybody's from somewhere, but in his case, his lineage back through the book of Ruth goes all the way back to Abraham. If you doubt that, then you just read the opening part of Matthew chapter 1. And here, at the end of Ruth, these are the generations of Perez. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab, Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And if you go further back, it goes, it starts with Abraham. In actual fact, his genealogy is uh, such that his is the most significant name after the name of Abraham in the genealogy that leads to the Lord Jesus himself. Secondly, he says, I was raised on high. Raised on high. Yes, he was. He was a keeper of the sheep, and now he found himself on the throne of Judah and Israel. If you remember, and I would be surprised if you do. I had to look for it myself, but it would just thought in my mind when I read, when I read this, who was raised on high. It took me back to uh, 2 Samuel and uh, to chapter 2, uh, where David inquires of the Lord, shall I go up? And the Lord says to him, go up. And up he goes. And we read that David became greater and greater. He knew the Lord had established him. And he says, here's the deal. I'm the son of Jesse, but I am the man who has been raised on high. Thirdly, I am the anointed of the God of Jacob. You can go in your mind's eye to that day for Samuel chapter 16, when he was anointed by Samuel, the God of Jacob. Jacob's name was also Israel. In other words, he's the father of the nation. It's very significant. This is what the word to Jacob was from God, Genesis 35. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. That was the promise that was made to Jacob. And now he says, and I was anointed in the name of the father of the nation. I was anointed in the name of Jacob himself. In other words, his significance is not on account of any kind of human achievement, but his significance is on account of a divine appointment. The significance of who I am and what I am is entirely related to God's plan and to God's purpose. And fourthly, he says, and I am the sweet psalmist of Israel, or I am, if you like, the hero of Israel's songs, or the focus of Israel's songs, because he was, wasn't he? That was one of the reasons that Saul was so annoyed with him, because they started to sing David's name. And they mentioned the fact that there were uh, 
There was testimony to the fact that Saul had slain his thousands, but that David had slain his tens of thousands. And uh, that rankled him, and understandably so. And he was, actually, uh, at the very heart of the songs and psalms that we still use to this day. I write the songs that make the maidens dance. I write the songs that make the soldiers brave. I am David, and I write the songs. That's what he's saying. That's my identity. This is my dad. I was nothing. I got raised up. I was anointed by God. And people sang a lot of songs, many of them that I wrote, and most of them I feature in. That's identity. Now, secondly, we go from there to prophecy. Notice verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Now, my words are carried at the moment to you by my breath. If I could not breathe, I could not form words, and I could not verbalize them in a way that you could hear them. So when David speaks, he says, it is the breath of the Lord, by the breath of the Lord. It is the Lord's Word that is on David's tongue. So at a very crass level, he's saying, I didn't make this stuff up. This is not an invention of my imagination. No, I am actually addressing you. This is the very oracle of God. And this, then, is the Word of God. Now, of course, we are familiar with this. The beginning of, of the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer starts off, you know, you know that in the past, in many and various ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, those whom God had entrusted with the responsibility of speaking His Word. When Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he points out to the listeners that this is the role that David fulfilled. How struck they must have been by that. Acts 2, 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne—in other words, he was trusting the promise of 2 Samuel 7—knowing that—listen to this—he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What is Peter talking about there? He's talking about the 16th Psalm, which ends, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David, in a prophetic manner, writes these words, which Peter then says, you've got to understand that what he was on about there, whether he fully grasped it or not, was the fact that there was going to be one who would come who would actually achieve that of which it speaks. He will not abandon me to decay. He will not let his Holy One see corruption. Who has not been abandoned to decay and to corruption? The Lord Jesus Christ. When Peter finally writes his second letter, it's still on this theme of the prophetic ministry, he makes it clear. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Remember, it says, and he was anointed, and from that day the Spirit of God rushed upon him. So the important point is simply this. 
that all of the authority lies not in the speaker, but in the source. In the source. There is no reason in the entire universe why any one of you would pay any attention to me or to any of my colleagues, save for a shared conviction that you prayerfully hope and trust that what we come here to share with you is not our imagination or our supposed intellect or our grasp of things, but to try and serve the Word of God so that in a way that is distinct from David, and yet in a way is in concurrence with David, that the very words that we have to offer are the words of God itself. Why are they the words of God? Well, they've been kept for us in the Bible. We can't, we can't live by bread alone, but only by the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Forever, O Lord, the psalmist writes, your word is settled in heaven. And that, of course, is what he's saying here. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, the word of the Lord proves true. That brings us, then, to the word itself. What is this word that is spoken? Well, there it is in just a couplet. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Now, I spent a long time on this this week. In fact, I got stuck. All, all afternoon Thursday, I couldn't get past this. Because I said to myself, I wonder, I wonder if there is another way of this being translated. And I'll tell you what the dilemma was. If you read that, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of the God, he dawns on them like a morning light. Okay. So it just, it just reads like a proverbial statement, doesn't it? Like, if there is anybody who fits this bill, then this is, uh, this is what you can expect. Which, of course, uh, is, is in a sense true. But is that the word of prophecy? Just a sort of uh, general statement about if justice rules, then it will be a nice day in the universe. Is that what we're dealing with here? Well, I went to the Hebrew, which is difficult for me. But nevertheless, Kyle and Delich, and if you have the commentary, you can check it yourself. Kyle and Delich, when I went to it, they said, the difficulty with this little section here is its enigmatical brevity. Its enigmatical brevity. Brevity. Well, that kept me for about 15 minutes just figuring out what an enigmatical brev brevity might actually be. And what they were saying was, in the original Hebrew, in order to give it some kind of syntax that is readable in English, certain parts have to be assumed. For example, I can show you later on, down in verse 6, where it says, but worthless men. There's no men in Hebrew. It's simply the word worthlessness, but worthlessness. But in order for it to be translated in a way that is absorbable by us, that happens. So I said, okay then, Kyle and Delich, what is your translation of this? This is their translation. So, a ruler over the human race will arise— when one rules justly. A ruler over the human race will arise, a just ruler, and will exercise his dominion in the spirit of the fear of God. Now, I say that's beginning to make sense. What he's prophesying here is not just a statement about, if anybody does a good job being a king, then it's a nice afternoon. No, 
This is the last word of David. This is the summation of the matter. He didn't get to this point in his life and just give us a few proverbs. No, what is he pointing to? Well, he's pointing to the ruler, and the ruler, and it says here, rules justly over men. Actually, it's that, that in Hebrew is rules justly over Adam, Adam being humanity, manhood. So it is a ruler who rules over humanity. Okay. Who rules over humanity so far? Right. Not David. He rules over Judea. He rules over Israel. And there's rulers all around in Egypt and everyone else. But no, 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 no. No, there's a ruler who rules over humanity. And this ruler who rules over humanity will do so justly, executing justice and righteousness. And the dominion that he has will be in full accord with God's rule, ruling in the fear of God. I delight to do your will, O God. Jesus says, the words that I speak are not my own words, but they're the words that my Father has given me to speak to you. No, he anticipates a day when there will be one who can rule over humanity, have dominion over the ends of the earth, be the one who presides over a kingdom that will never come to an end, that transcends time, transcends distance, nationhood, gender, everything. That's why I said to you at the beginning, the answer to your life is actually in this, that a king who will come. What will it be like? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? And so he says in verse 4, well, let me give you an inkling of what it will be like. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the morning light. The hymn writer picked up on this and wrote a uh, hymn that begins, I am waiting for the dawning of the bright and blessed day, when the darksome night of sorrow shall have vanished far away, when forever with the Savior, far beyond the veil of tears, I will swell the song of gladness in those everlasting years. Presumably, this is where he got it from. Because when he rules and when he reigns, it will be like a morning like you've never seen a morning. I love the mornings. Do you love the mornings? I mean, every time you have a morning, you know you're still alive. That's the first thing. You might be walking a little slower than the yesterday, but you sort of say, oh, I'm alive. Good. Here we go. We've got a chance, especially if it's still dark, and then you can wait a little. You take your coffee and sit and wait, and then the dawn comes up. Oh, what a morning, gloriously bright, with the dawning of hope in Jerusalem. Remember? The Easter song. That's what David says it's going to be like. It'll be a dawn like you've never seen a dawn. Secondly, it will be like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. In other words, it'll be warm. Warm. You can take, you can, you can take, your, you, you can take the bins down in your pajamas— you can't do that in, in November or December. Well, you can, but you shouldn't. No, it's, it's, it's going to be like living in South Carolina or something, only better. And when the rain comes, the rain will make grass to sprout from the earth without a, without a hint of thorns and thistles. Now, I like grass, but I don't like ca- crabgrass. Crabgrass— is starting to really annoy me because it grow, it sticks up taller than all the rest of your grass. 
And even when you go and get it, hand-pick it, like you've got an attention disorder, and you pick it, and you go to bed, and you get up, and it's back. It's like, nah, 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 everywhere. Is there ever going to be just a perfect lawn? Everywhere looks like Augusta National. It'll make Augusta National look like a cabbage patch when the rain comes and the sprouts arrive. It's a prophecy. I was driving behind a car the other day. It had coexist on it. it. had something about Muhammad. It had about gender. It had about—I don't know what it had on it, but I was, so, I was so excited to get up close to it so I could, you know, just expand my categories. And, 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 and I actually—Sue I, was in the car, and I said to her, Honey, you know, this is all answered. All Every longing here is answered in King Jesus. There's coexistence. There's no racial discrimination. There's no gender dysphoria. When we bow our knees before the King, all for which humanity longs is met in Him. This is a prophecy. This is going to happen. Well, we're destroying the planet. Okay, don't destroy it. But don't worry, because there's a new heaven and there's a new earth in which dwells righteousness. Thirdly, history. History in what sense? Well, I wrote in my notes, see now what God has done. You notice what he does here in verse 5? Having given this prophetic statement, he says, now, coming back to the present, doesn't my house stand so with God? In other words, what he's doing here is he's saying that the certainty of the ruler who is to come, about whom he has just given a prophetic word, is supported by the existence of David's present tense experience as king over Israel. The existence of the dynasty of David is a historical point along the journey that says, see what he did with David, and what he was doing with David was just a foreshadowing of what he's going to do. Actually, it works the other way around as well, that uh, what he's going to do is what gives significance to David. What is he doing with David? Well, he's making a name for him. He's giving victory to him. David is administrating, administering uh, justice and equity to all the people. That's back in chapter 8. Remember the distinction again. He said David was a good guy. He was doing this. But, but it was inadequate, wasn't it? That's what I began. As I began, we've seen him at his highs, but we've seen him at his lows. It didn't last— he wasn't able to see it through. But nevertheless, it provided historical testimony to the promise of God. And that promise is tied to this everlasting covenant. He says, For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? In other words, this has begun with the initiative of God, he says. It is God who reached out to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees and called him to himself. It is God who sent Samuel uh, to my house. It is God who has anointed me and put me in this position. He can't have, he can't have uh, brought me thus far just to dump me. Well, you made some really bad moves, David. 
Yes. So on what basis does he have confidence that his bad moves have not taken him out of the running? The same basis that you and I have for confidence that our foolish choices and our sinful disobedience has not removed us from the unfolding purposes of God. You remember Nathan comes to him, and he says, Your sin is forgiven. Your sin is forgiven. He is not here saying, You know, since I've done a terrific job, it's no wonder that I have uh, enjoyed the privileged position that is mine as the king. No, he's acknowledging the fact that any good stuff he really did, he did on account of God's amazing grace. And the keeping power of God is in an everlasting covenant. He cannot have taught us to trust in his name, and thus far have brought us to leave us in shame. Will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? I think David would have been happy with Augustus Top Lady's hymn, which reads in part, The work which his goodness began— the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yes and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below and above, can make him his purpose forgo or sever my soul from his love. The covenant is an everlasting covenant, and the kingdom is forever. If you are in Christ today, you know this. You don't have to go out and get yourself a dandelion and blow on it and ask the question, you know, he loves me, he loves me not, I'm in, I'm out. You live in your life that way that you have never understood the finished work of Jesus Christ. He never saved you because you were so good, and he doesn't keep you on account of your being good. Goodness gracious, if everybody were to know every evil thought that was in my heart, you'd never listen to me preach. And if I were to know the thoughts of your cumulative hearts, I'd never show up on a Sunday. It would be beyond possibility, wouldn't it? Unless the God who saves is the God who keeps. All my longings met in him, all my desires, all my fears, all my failures swallowed up by his amazing grace. That's what he's saying. And that's his present history, and that's the history of grace. Finally, destiny. Destiny. Eternal life or eternal punishment. You see, this is unavoidable. The promise of the kingdom comes with an unavoidable warning. Worthlessness is the enemy of righteousness. Opposition to the king is ultimately both worthless and hopeless. The people say, well, I, I don't want to um, believe these things about Jesus. I want to believe what I want to believe and live my life as I choose to live it. And I am an autonomous self, you know. It's an understandable reaction because it's, it's the sinful reaction of all of us by nature. We live in darkness. We live in the realm of self-assertiveness. We're without God, and we're without hope in the world. You see, what is true for humanity as a whole is true for us as individuals. 
You know, how is, it, how is a, a 10-year-old boy going to make his journey through life? How, how, how is a teenage girl going to manage her way through this? Well, you see, that's children's ministry, isn't it? That's midnight madness. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is the king. You say, well, I know that. I've heard that so many times, but I just I didn't think I had to do anything about it. I thought I was in on my—you know, like when people go to the club and they sign my number. It's, it's like, does anybody pay for this, you know? Uh, yeah, I do. And some of you are operating on that basis. Well, my dad, he's good. He goes to the Bible study. My mom, she's in children's ministry. I guess I'm getting a free pass. No, you're not. You need to actually bow your knee to Jesus, the King. However young you are, however old you are, however much time you've got left in your life. Because either in bowing to Jesus, our lives are filled with hope, or in rejecting Jesus— our lives are ultimately worthless. Some of you are saying, well, yeah, but I, I, I can get that, you, in the Old Testament. I've never really understood the Old Testament. I've never really liked it. And uh, I've always been much more happy with, with Jesus. Okay, here's Jesus. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. By nature, we are in darkness. Light is in the Lord. By nature, we are spiritually dead. Life is in the Lord. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Oh, there you go, you see. That's the one we were looking for. That's the part I like. See, Jesus said he didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Well, just read what he said. It doesn't mean that judgment won't eventually come to the people to whom he's speaking. Judgment will eventually come to all. That's absolutely certain. What he's saying is that his first purpose in coming was to save, to save those who rejected him to save those who said, no, I'm not going to march in your army. Isn't that quite amazing? And so the inference is clear. We heard it in Hannah's song. The judge will come. The judge will come. One day we will face the judge, and that judge whom we will face has come, first of all, as a Savior— he came to deliver men and women from the judgment. That's John 3.16. Peter says he has no desire that any one of us should perish. So that means simply this, that we're on one side or the other. There is no middle ground. C.S. Lewis got it right, didn't he, when he said there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done— and those to whom God says, All right, then, have it your own way. That will be the execution of God's judgment. That's why we have the king set before us now, 
so that we may fall at his feet and embrace him as a Savior, so that on the day when we face him, we may do so unashamed, clothed in the righteousness that he alone provides. Hope-filled or hopeless? Father, thank you that your word is clear. Any cloudiness is on our part. Uh, Even the parts that we don't really want to pay much attention to is just unashamedly clear. And we thank you that it does set before us a broad road, a narrow road. Jesus speaks about sheep. He speaks about goats. Um, It's unpalatable in our day. And only the Bible is going to help us with this, and it is to the Bible we look. Fulfill your purposes in us and through us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Alistair Begg from Truth For Life, and you're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.